The book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, are one of my favorite portions of the Bible. I especially have a heart for 1 and 2 Samuel because it really talks about the life of uh, of a character that I, I really love and I'm looking forward to meeting him one day, and that is King David. Of course, 1 Samuel really covers the ministries or the careers of three different individuals. The first one we've been looking at is Samuel. We saw him, uh, his mother Hannah, and um, his father Elkanah. We saw his beginnings, and uh, we're coming upon this chapter actually will end his ministry. And it doesn't mean that he's going to drop off the face of the earth, but it really marks a point in history of Israel's history where Samuel was ministering, and then there comes a time where Saul, and we'll look at that in chapter 8 next week, uh, where his ministry really begins, where the, the children of Israel cry out for a king like the other nations around them. And so God gives them a king. And, and really, that uh, his ministry, his career, if you will, Saul lasts from chapter 8 through chapter 15, and then finally, we will see David come on the scene and he is anointed by Samuel uh, in chapter uh, uh, around 16. And then through the end of the book, we will see David's life uh, portrayed for us. And it's a really wonderful uh, portion of Scripture. And I would encourage you to read over the whole thing at, um, before, you know, uh, as often as you can while we're in 1 Samuel. It'll be, there's a lot of lessons there, and it's a lot of really great history uh, of the nation of Israel. And so... Tonight, we will look at chapter 7. You remember when we were in chapter 5, we saw the the Philistines uh, taking the Ark of the Covenant. They foolishly brought it into battle with them against the Philistines at Aphek. And um, they brought it to Ebenezer, and they went out to battle with the Philistines. And the Philistines whipped them pretty bad and then took the Ark away from them, which was a really horrible thing. It's sort of like taking the Declaration of Independence, but even more so, right? <laughs> it's sort of like somebody stealing the most important thing in your country, and that's really what it was. But, and so in 1 Samuel chapter 5, we see the Ark of the Covenant going from the Ebenezer up there in the northern part of Israel uh, to Ashdod, uh, finally to Gath, and then to Ekron, which these are Philistine cities. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 6 that we looked at last week, the ark gets taken from Ekron, and finally, they remember we talked about the, how superstitious the Philistines were, and we talked about superstition in our own lives. And in America, every country, every people has superstition in it. It's, it's very hard to escape from. It's kind of built into us. And you, you can understand where I'm coming from. How many times have you said, hey, good luck? How many times have you said, hey, knock on wood, you know, if that happens, you know, and you knock on wood, that's another superstition, you know. And we looked at how that really doesn't honor the Lord at all, does it? Superstition, because it's placing um, causation on something else other than God. We forget God. We'll put the cause or the, you know, what caused this thing, whatever it may be, we, 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 we point to other things, but we, we fail to realize that God is aware of everything. He's all-powerful. There's nothing that can come against you, Christian, that is, go- that is more powerful. There- no superstition is powerful, more powerful than you and, and, and the Spirit of God in you, right? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So you can walk across the path of a whole fleet of black cats on Halloween. And guess what? You're just going to be fine. You could walk under a ladder. You could um, get married on Friday the 13th. You know, don't you worry, because God is more powerful than all that nonsense. Amen? Amen. And so we looked at that, and so the Philistines, they send an offering with the ark, along with the ark. They put it on a cart. They send it from, uh, from Ekron, which God had really come against the Philistine cities and brought upon them um, uh, boils and, and basically their hemorrhoids. And a really horrible time, God uh, brought judgment upon them for taking the ark. And it's like a hot potato. And so now the ark is going from one town, one Philistine town to another. What a great gift to give to the people you love. Hey, we got this really bad, horrible disease. We're sending it to you. Thank you so much. 
when can I expect it? Can you send the tracking number? I want to be right there at the front door when it comes. You know, and so we, we looked at that. And finally, they're fed up with the ark, and they send it to Beth Shemesh, and then finally to Kirjath-Jerim, which is where the ark finally rested and was there for some time. But let's read through chapter 7 now, and then we'll go back and take a look at it. Notice in verse 7, chapter, uh, verse 1, excuse me, it says, Then the men of Kirjath-Jerim came, and they took the ark of the Lord, and they brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill, and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. And so it was that the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time. It was there twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and they served the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. And so they gathered together at Mizpah. They drew water, they poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted that day. And they said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the Lord of the Philistines, the lords of the Philistines, went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered as a whole burnt offering to the Lord, And then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out to Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, and drove them back as far as below Bethkar. And then Samuel took a stone. And he set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. Hmm, sounds like a hymn we sang this evening. Saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. And so the Philistines were subdued. And they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. Also, there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged all the days of his life, judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah for this was his home. And there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. To the Lord. Let's go back to verse 1 here. It says that the men of Kirjath Jerim, they came and they took the ark of the Lord. They brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. Because remember, the men of Beth Shemesh, they had taken the ark after it was driven from Ekron on the cart. And they brought it, and some of the men of Beth Shemesh, the curiosity got the better of them, and they looked inside the Ark of the Covenant, which was something that even the, Phil, or even the Levites weren't supposed to do. They were not even supposed to touch it. They much less look inside of it. Remember that whenever they moved the articles within the holy place and in the holy of holies, they would always carry it through uh, acacia wood that's been overlaid with gold. There was rings on these articles of furniture like the, the lampstand and the, the altar of incense and the table of showbread. And then behind the veil, right in front of the altar of incense, behind that in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Every one of those four pieces of furniture had rings in the side of those things. And they were to be carried, not with man's hands, but they were to run these gold poles or acacia wood overlaid with gold through those rings, and they were to bear them on their shoulders. That's how they were to to move them. They weren't supposed to touch them, much less look inside of them. And so the men of Beth Shemesh, the curiosity got the better of them. Isn't that true about sin? Whenever you're told not to do something? You know, I remember when my daughter was little, 
<laughs> I hope she doesn't mind me saying this. I, don't, I know she's not online. Um, you know, when you, when you tell your son or daughter, don't do that, and they're, they're, they're about three or four years old or even younger, and you, and, and you look at them and you've told them not to do that, whatever it is, don't, don't, you, don't you touch that. And, they're, and they look at you, and they're standing right there, and, and they got their finger, and, and they're looking at you, and don't you do it. And they're like, and they get real close, and then they touch it, and then you cave and you don't do anything about it. And then they keep doing it, right? <laughs> Shame on you. So anyway, that is the way, that's the sin nature. Whenever we're told not to do something, that's the one thing we have to do. The devil says, why did they not want you to do it? There must be something really great about it. It must be really good. It must taste really great. You can have any fruit of, this, of, of the trees in this huge, huge place. This garden is great. It's got everything, avocados. You got, you know, everything. But don't touch that one. All of a sudden, all the trees just kind of fade away, and there's that one tree. And that's all you see. So they look inside of it, and God judges them, and they die. A great many of them die. Some estimate at least 70, maybe even 50,000, 70. There's a, a textual thing there we, we don't have to go into. We looked at that last week. But then finally, the men of Beth Shemesh, they say to the men at Kirjath Jearim, come and get this thing. And get it out of our, our, our way. And so the men come and they get it. And then the men come and they take the ark of God. They bring it into the house of Abinadab. Um, this, this, this place, Kirjath-Jerim, literally means city of forests. That's really what their name means. And the city belongs to the tribe of Judah. Belongs to the tribe of Judah. It's a place about nine miles northeast of Beth Shemesh, where it came from, or roughly nine miles northwest of Jerusalem, if you were looking at a map. But it bring, they bring it into the house of Abinadab. And Abinadab was a Levite, and so was his son, Eleazar. And we're going to see that, you know, they bring it into his house. And incidentally, Abinadab was not only the father of Eleazar, but he was also the father or grandfather of Ahio and Uzzah, which we will see later on in 2 Samuel chapter 6 when David made his first attempt to bring the ark from um, um, Obed-Edom's house, and we'll look at that later, and these two men, Ahio and Uzzah, from uh, Abinadab's house, they bring the ark, and one of them was killed because he put his hand on the ark, trying to steady it. And I find that interesting, too, that you'd think that God would be concerned about the contents of the box falling over and spilling out onto the ground and breaking another two tablets. But the Lord wasn't concerned. When God says, this is the way I'm to be approached, we need to obey that, whatever it is, and let the details go up to him. He's not so much concerned about the ends, but the means as well. How we go about things. It's the journey that's important. You know, God can bring us from A to B if he, if he so chooses, but there's something that happens in that journey, in that time of waiting, in that time of patience that cannot be replaced by anything. It cannot be replaced by anything. Because it's in that waiting, it's in that time period in between. That's where we grow. That's where we're, our hearts are seeking. That's where our hearts are, are wanting to really just cave into the Lord and say, Lord, whatever you want. I'm tired of fighting. Anybody tired of fighting with the Lord and his will for your life? There came a point where I said, you know what, Lord, I really want your will to be done, and I don't care how you do it, because I can't get there. I don't know how to get there. And guess what, folks? Here's a mystery, and here's a solution that hopefully will set you free. Don't worry. If you really desire God's will to be done in your life, he's going to do it. Is it your desire, though, or is your will more important? I had a desire to be something completely different for my life. I wanted to be a traveling, worldwide classical guitarist tra traveling all over the world. That was my, what I wanted to do with my life. And I'm so glad that the Lord intervened because, honestly, there's nothing greater, the greater privilege I have than doing what I'm doing right now. I am so thrilled and so privileged and so thankful for God for intervening in my life. I didn't even know what I wanted. I thought I did. But surrender your will. If you want his will done, he will get it done. But you have to surrender. And you know what? And your life will go through a series of 
changes and uh, things that you thought you, you know, decisions that you thought you made, and you're, you're, you're like, oh, Lord, help me make this decision right, and then the decision is made, and it brings you off into this area, and you, could, you understand what I'm saying. There's all kinds of decisions we can make to, for God to get us from here to there, and if we really want his will to be done, the process is much easier if we just submit to him. Much straighter line. He's going to be working in us the whole time. But if you're self-willed and self-focused and resistant, you're going to be all over the map. He's finally going to get you there, but it may take twice as long. Why do you think he had Moses out in the desert for 40 years before he allowed him? He was 80 years old before he went into Egypt and brought the people out of Israel. Out of Egypt, excuse me. What was he doing those 40 years in the desert? Chasing his father-in-law's sheep around. God was working. Forty years, folks. And some of us in this room, and, and I'm one of those, I get really impatient when a year goes by and I'm not seeing the result that I want. Understand that God is not so much concerned about time. He's concerned about obedience and our hearts in it. And so take that and, and, and surrender now. You'll be the most blessed for it. And your life will be much more of a blessing to you and everyone else around you because there's nothing worse than being around a frustrated Christian a Christian who feels like they've got to be the one in charge. A Christian who feels like I've got to have my, I got to, I got to control my own destiny. And man, I tell you what, didn't Jesus say, you know, uh, if you want your life, he who he loses his life will gain it, but he who gains his life will lose it. That's the idea. That's the idea. So in verse two it says, "So the ark, so it was that the ark remained in Kirjath Jearim a long time. It was there twenty years." And all the house of Israel lamented after the ark. Now, it's interesting, as we look at this ark of the covenant, uh, it's interesting from where it came. And I just want to take you a quick journey through where it, where it was and where it ultimately rested. And this is kind of interesting because we know that it was at that battle that we saw back in chapter 4 and chapter 5, where it was finally taking, taken by the Philistines, and it was with them, according to uh, the sixth chapter there in verse one it says it was in the Philistines' hands for seven months, and then it says here in uh, verse uh, two of chapter seven that it was at, at Kirjath Jearim in the house of Abinadab for twenty years. It was actually there a lot longer than that. Some believe that it was there twenty years, and then notice in verse three it says that then Samuel wanted to get everyone together at Mizpah. It was there for 20 years, probably until that moment. But we also know that Saul came into, he reigned for how many years? It says in Acts 13, Paul says that Saul reigned for 40 years. And so now we have 20 years plus 40 years, that's 60 years. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we learn that David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and it wasn't until he was 30 years old that it tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 6 that he went and got the ark from Kirjath-Jerim. So now we got 20 years plus 40 years plus 30 years. That's 90 years, folks. It's been sitting there in Abinadab's house. And we know that David... In his first attempt, it tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 16, you'll also see it in 1 Chronicles 13, he takes the ark, and like, the, like he saw the ark coming, or it was reported to him that the Philistines brought it on a cart. And David's like, that's a really swell idea. And nobody died? No, nobody died at all. Well, let's do the same thing. For heaven's sake, those poor guys need a break, the Levites. Let's just get this done a lot quicker. We can do it a lot quicker if it's on wheels. You know, we can just zoom this thing into town. And so he does it the wrong way. God judges Uzzah, remember? And then David, at that point, they weren't very far away, and they decide, you know what? David was afraid of the Lord that day. So for three months, he thought about it. And then he takes it over to Obed-Edom's house. And there it remained. remained there until Solomon came and fetched it. So, verse 3, it says, Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel. This is his gathering of all Israel together to Mizpah. And notice what he said. He says, if, underline that word if, here's a conditional statement coming, 
if you return to the Lord, and he says this to the whole house of Israel, with all of your hearts, if you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths from among you and prepare your heart for the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Notice in this verse the conditional statement that is there. The Bible is filled with conditional statements. And sometimes there's unconditional statements. And the conditional statements means there's a condition. If I do this, then God does this. There are other times where God says, I'm going to do this regardless of what you do. He gave those promises to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to make of your seed like the stars of the heaven, like the sand of the sea. They're, they're going to be in so numerable innumerable hosts. That's an unconditional promise. God was going to do it. He didn't say, if you did, the, if you did this or did that. No, he said, this is how, what I'm going to do in your life. So it was condition. It was a condition. And we saw this kind of thing, these conditional statements, and the problems that the Israel, uh, the, the children of Israel got into. Remember when we were in the book of Judges, there was this awful cycle that they went through. First, there was apostasy. They fell away from the Lord. They weren't obedient. Then they were oppressed by an enemy of some kind. And then they finally repent after God, you know, and then God delivers them fi- finally after they do that. And they continue this cycle. And we're going to see the lives of the people of Israel going through this very same thing. And it's not any different than really our own lives. You know, before I get so heavy on the Israelites, you know, it could have been any people group on the planet Earth. It just so happened that God chose the Jews, but it could have been the Germans. It could have been the Italians. It could have been the Asians. It could have been anybody else, the Irish. It wouldn't have mattered because the same sin nature dwells in each of us, regardless of our background. But there was something they had to do. Notice this conditional statement. Notice he said, If you return to the Lord with all of your hearts, put away the foreign gods, the Ashtoreths from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord. And if you serve him only then, and only then, he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. There is a condition. If you do this, then I will do this. And I love the fact that God puts us in a place like that. He, doesn't, he, do, he just doesn't say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of everything for you. I'm going to give you everything. You don't have to do a single thing. Just sit back and enjoy the ride. I'm going to give you everything. You can be totally dependent upon me. No, God says, I'm going to do certain things, whether you like it or not, and other things I'm not going to do unless you do certain things. And we see this in Colossians 2, just to put uh, some application on our own lives. What did Paul say to the Colossians in chapter 3, beginning in verse 5? Notice, he says, put to death your members which are on the earth. And you're like, what members are you talking about? He lists them. It's a really wonderful list. Fornication. Uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Did you ever walk like that before you came to Christ? This described me. And unfortunately, it describes some Christians. It's really important that we take our walk with Christ very seriously. He is a God of grace, there's no doubt about that, but we cannot walk in, in this cheap grace that some people purport and even promote. Grace is not cheap. It was paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's by then we have grace because of what Christ did. It's not a license to continue in sin at all. In fact, the more I understand about what he did on the cross for me, the more I'm repulsed by sin in my own life first. And sin is pleasurable for a season, isn't it? If it were horrible every time, there'd be no problem. <laughs> but it's like the candy in front of the baby. Can't resist it. And then we put it in their mouth, and then they realize it's licorice, and they hate licorice. But notice, they are responsible to do certain things, just as we are responsible to do certain things. So what did he say in verse 8 of Colossians 3? He says, But now you yourselves are to put off all these. Notice, you are to do it. Wait a minute. Why don't you do it, God? No, he says, I want you to do it. You put off these things. You put off anger. You put off wrath. You put off malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Before I came to Christ, I had a filthy, rotten mouth. Especially when I was in my late teens and early 20s. Rotten. Just rotten. 
I wonder why, how I could even eat with that mouth. It was so dirty. And yet when the Lord came into my life, it was the first, one of the first things that, it, you know, does, can anybody relate to this? I know you can. When you give your heart to Christ, there are certain things in your life he just took, he just took away. They just like, they, they vanished. Then there's a few things that linger. A few things that linger, but one of the things that he took from me immediately was my rotten mouth. It was almost like he had a filter right before my mouth and my heart. And before I'd even say anything, I would really be thinking about my language. And I was aware of it for the first time in my whole life. And he helped me. I mean, that was something that he did. I can't take credit for it. But notice, he says, Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man and his deeds. You have put off the old man. Have you put off the old man with his deeds? And notice, and have put on the new man. Oh, there's something else we have to do. We have to put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is in all. But notice in verse 12 what he says in Colossians 3. He says, but therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved. I love that. Do you know that you're holy and beloved? You are holy. God has made you holy. He has sanctified you and he is continuing to sanctify you. And one day you will be ultimately sanctified as you're in his presence. But he has set you apart. I love the idea of being set apart, don't you? God sets you apart. That's what holy means. That's what consecration is. You're set apart from something, but not just from something, but to something. That's why he goes here and he says, now that you've put off those things, don't just put off those things and set in a vacuum. No, you put off those things and you put on something else. You put on the tender mercies of Christ. What does he say? Put on the tender mercies as the elect of God, holy and beloved. Put on kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, which is patience. Anybody impatient here? Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Wow, these are pretty heavy things. You know, you can go by this list very quickly, but I would encourage you to read Colossians chapter 3. And look at these lists and think about them. Don't just read them. Think about them and say, Lord, what ways am I, where are my issues in this list? What are the things I need to be concerned about? Pick one or two of them and be cognizant of it throughout the day. Let him work on you that way. Don't just read it in like a textbook. It's not a textbook. It's more than that. If anyone has a complaint against one another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must, must do. For above all these things, but above all these things, excuse me, put on love, agape love, which is the bond of perfection. Love is such a wonderful thing. It's a, one of the most powerful things in the world. Love does make the world go round. God's love. And when we walk in that love, an agape love, the word there is agape or agapeo, that when, when, when we walk in that love, people need to see that because it's, it's getting more rare as time goes on. People's hearts are getting harder. They're getting more divisive. Things are getting really heated up out there. Notice them back in, in our text in verse 4, it says, So the children of Israel, they put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths. These are the uh, fertility gods that the... Those in Mesopotamia that they worshipped, the Baals and the Ashtoreths. One's a male deity, the Baals, and the Ashtoreth is a female de- deity of, of uh, inf- or, or fertility. But notice that the, the children of Israel, they needed a governor. They needed a governor or someone that would hold them accountable. Turn back with me to the book of Judges in chapter 2. It's just a, uh, not too far away. In Judges chapter 2, and I would encourage you as you read this, make a note of it, star this passage, and read it often because this is such a remarkable scripture passage, actually. Uh, and looking specifically at Judges chapter 2, verses 7 through 13, because this is where the, um, this is where the, the children of Israel were doing this roller coaster of morality. They were in and out of it, in and out of it. And that's what the book of Judges was all about. But notice what it says in Judges 2, verse 7. It says, and this is when Joshua, right before he died, he gave, he told them, he says, and so the people, verse 7, served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Remember, Joshua was like a judge to them. He was sort of like a Moses, right? And so as long as these men were alive, they were kind of all doing the right thing. 
So as long as all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel, notice in verse 8 it says, Now Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. They buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath-Herez in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaash. When all that generation, and here, look at verse 10, start this, because this is chilling, because I believe we're living in this reality right now in America. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them, notice, who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel, and even scarier still, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had bought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all, all around them. And they bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. Isn't that what we just read? Now they come, kind of come full circle. Now they turn from those things, which is a really good sign. And that's a good thing because because of Samuel's character and his uh, judgmentship or his oversight, really, he was really keeping them in line. And sometimes we need somebody like that in our life. Maybe it's another brother or sister in Christ who's been in the Lord a lot longer than we have, and they're really good friends. Value those relationships, especially in the Lord, because they can encourage you. And they've been through things that you haven't been through yet. That we can comfort others with the comfort we've been comforted of God, right? Isn't that what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1? And so it's important that we do that. We need, sometimes we need these people in our lives. And cherish them when you have, when you have them, because they are there for God's purposes. Notice in verse 5, and, it's, and Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. Now, this place, Mizpah, was really equidistant between, uh, between Ramah, Samuel's home, and Bethel. And so all these three cities were directly north of Jerusalem, if you were looking at a map. And, so, and here is really what intercession is all about, isn't it? Samuel prays for them. That's what intercession is. You're interceding on the behalf of someone else. When you pray for a friend, when you pray for a family member, what you're doing is interceding. Or maybe you're praying that God would supply their needs, supplication. Praying that God would bless them somehow with something. And I would encourage you to never give up on prayer, folks. It is a great privilege. Something I need to do a lot more of. And I dare to say that something probably all need to do more of. So verse 6, they gathered together at Mizpah, and they drew water, they poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted that day and said, We have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. And this is a good sign when they are confessing, really. Isn't that what this is? They're confessing. We have sinned against the Lord. We've done all these things. We've been serving the Baals. We've been serving the Ashtaroths. We've been doing these wicked things. And finally, they fast. They're, they're praying. They're confessing their sin. And isn't it true? If we confess our sin, isn't that what John said in his first epistle, first letter? If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us of all unrighteousness and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll forgive us, but we have to confess it. That kind of leads you to believe, well, if I don't confess it, am I forgiven? Well, it doesn't sound like it. That may rub you a little wrong, but as long as you're aware of sin, confess it. Now, does that mean if you sin and you don't have time to confess it and you get hit by a car, does that mean you're going to go to hell? No. But as often as you know, come clean before the Lord. Isn't that what it's really about anyway, just coming clean with him? You can't, you can't lie to him. You can. People do it all the time. But you can't lie to one who knows all things. If you read Psalm 139 and you think you got God hoodwinked at any time, you need some counseling or you need a big blue pill. You need something because you're not thinking right. He knows all things. You can't fool him. So don't try. Oh, God won't see me because I do it in the dark. I guess he sees the dark as if it's light. He made the darkness. <laughs> he made the light. He knows everything, right? So as they're pouring out this water, this is really like a drink offering and in that time, uh, they used to pour out drink offerings to false gods. 
And God certainly was against that. You can see that in Isaiah 57, verse 6, and also in Jeremiah 7, verse 18. But if you look even at the, the, the law in Exodus 29, part of their offerings was a drink offering. Uh, for instance, in Exodus 29, it talks about give offering a lamb in the morning and a lamb in the evening. And what does it say in verse 40? With one lamb shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil and one-fourth of a hen of wine as a drink offering. The drink offering was to be poured out on the altar, not to consume, but to pour out. It's a sacrifice, isn't it? Because it's wine, it's food, it's, it's, your, it's a lamb. Is that a sacrifice? You better believe it's a sacrifice because you'd much rather drink that wine and eat that lamb. Lamb chops. Deep fried. No, in, in a pan with just a little bit of oil and some flour and put that in like one of those cast iron skillets and it gets nice and brown on both sides. It's really good. So that was part of their sacrifice, a drink offering. When we look at 2 Samuel chapter 23, at the end of David's life, you remember David in, in uh, 2 Samuel 23, he's recalling the men that God had uh, given to him, his mighty men. These men who had been with him that had done great things, great military feats. And in that chapter, it recalls a moment when earlier in uh, David's life, when he was running from the Philistines, it says that David was in, this is 2 Samuel 23, beginning in verse 14. It says, David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, remember, he's here with his two or three hundred or four hundred men, his mighty men, and there were three men that really stood out above all those men, three men that really loved David, would do anything for him. Can you imagine what a great group of guys this must have been? It wasn't a good old boys club. They knew David was a man of integrity, so they weren't, you know, you know standing around the, the campfire at night getting loaded and saying filthy jokes. David was a man of integrity, but notice his, these three men loved him so much. David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem. Boy, he knew Bethlehem. When he was a little boy, he used to shepherd those, that flock out in the fields. And he would reach down in those, cold, in those uh, you know, hot summer days, and he'd reach down the brook and pull up nice cold water from Bethlehem in a stream, and he'd be like, oh, that's so refreshing. If I could only have that, if you'd long for something like that. And just as he's saying that the three mighty men uh, broke through the camp of the Philistines, somehow they broke through either unawares or whatever, they drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and they took it and they brought it back to David. Can you imagine? And nevertheless, he wouldn't drink it, but he poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. It was, Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he wouldn't drink it. It was like a drink offering. He just poured it out. And to, that, to the men, you know, they might have been tempted to think, Are you kidding me? We risked our lives? But who, who is he pouring the water out for now? To the Lord. Isn't the Lord worth it? think he is. And notice that it says in uh, chapters, or verse 6 uh, of our text there, it says that, and Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. And this brings us back to, um, we know that Eli was the judge right before Samuel, because Samuel, as a young boy, five or six years old, his mother takes him, Hannah, she takes him to Shiloh, and he's there with Eli. And Eli judged Israel for 40 years, and then he passes from the scene, we saw that in a few chapters back. But, Saul, but Samuel's ministry was really twofold. He, he would judge in civil things, and he would also command the military to go out and vanquish their enemies. And that those were two, two specific things that Samuel was to do. In verse 7 it says, So when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the children of Israel heard of it, they were very afraid of the Philistines. See, the Philistines had this iron business down pretty well. They knew how to work with iron, and they had iron chariots, and they had tools that the, that the, the children of Israel didn't have. They didn't have this kind of skill that these guys had. So whenever they went to battle with them, they were naturally very nervous because you're going up against a very formidable foe. 
Their weapons are more advanced than you are. It's sort of like going out with tanks when you know that they got rocket launchers and nuclear bombs. You can bring out as many tanks as you want. One bomb in the center will incinerate all of them. You get my point. And that's kind of the way that they felt. So they were naturally very afraid. But I think it's interesting that whenever the people of God repent, like they had at this time, and they started to stand up, the enemy will always take notice of the silent majority standing up. The enemy will always take notice when the church stands up and does what God wants, has ordained for it to be and to do. In fact, those are the times that we really find out what we're made of, and hopefully we find out that we're nothing and that God is everything. God has never won battles by a great military export, you know. It's always been by a few, by a remnant, by something very insignificant, like David going before Goliath. Everybody was shaking in their boots, but oh, this young teenager, he looks at Goliath and he's like, you know what, I've taken out bears and lions out when I was in, out in the, in, the, in the fields with my sheep. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Let me add him. I'm going to take his head off now. And he's like, all the men are like, <laughs> and, and they're feeling pretty small at this point. And David's like, no, let me add him. Well, put on my armor. You know, Saul puts his armor on. I can't deal with this. Just give me a sling and some stones in my sling. I'll take him out. And sure enough, he goes out there. And, and I just, I want to see this in replay. And I want to see it in slow motion and glory. I want to see the moment when David was running. Can you just see it? I mean, I got to do this, okay? So hang in there. He's got the sling, and he's in slow motion. He's got that big rock, and it's right in there. And he's got that little leather pouch, and he's got that thing, and he's coming after Goliath. And the, the expression on the face, too, will have, it's all like, oh, is it going to work? And bam, right in the center of the forehead. I mean, I mean, so anyway, it gets, I'm a guy, so I get into that, right? You ladies are going, uh, whatever. But every guy in the room is there with me, right? You're with me. Then he takes out the sword and he cuts off his head. It's a great show. So anyway, so what was my point? <laughs> Just kidding. But whenever the people of God stand up, the enemy will always know it and they'll come after you. They'll come after you. Whenever you're doing God's will, the enemy's going to come after you. And these guys, their hearts were right and that God was going to deliver them. God was going to deliver them from their enemies. And so, verse 8, the children of Israel, they said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord for us, that he may save us from the hand of our enemies. It reminds me of that wonderful verse in Second Chronicles 7. Remember when um, uh, Solomon, God appears to Solomon, and the Lord appeared in Second Chronicles 7, verse 12. The Lord appeared to Solomon by night, and he said to him, I have heard your prayer. This is around the time when Solomon was dedicating the temple when it was built. God says to him, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And when I shut up heaven and earth, or when I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or I command the locusts to devour the land, or I send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will do what? They will humble themselves. If they do, notice the condition here. If they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Isn't this what they were doing? They're humbling themselves. They're turning from their wicked ways. They're praying to God. And boy, that's a, a really great thing for us in America today. Believe me, folks, we deserve hell. This country deserves, as any country on the planet does, we all deserve to be incinerated by a holy God, but thank God for his grace. And God has a plan for this country. And we're fighting for it right now. We're seeing it in real time. Truth, folks, truth is the battle. There are many things that are in, in play right now, but truth is a huge one. And you and I have the truth of God in our hearts, and we have it in our hands right now. Listen to the truth, obey the truth, love the truth, and share that truth. Share the truth. But notice, if they humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven 
and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's what America needs, is we need to come back to God. We need to come back to God in our schools, in our universities. They have almost all given wholly over to liberalism. Every single one of them, and many Christian institutions that once used to be sternly examples of Christian conduct and character, have gone by the wayside. It's a flood, folks. It's really discouraging. But God. But God. That's why we need to pray. More ever than right now, we need to be praying. So please pray for our country. We are on the verge of something. We need to be praying. We need to be praying. So the children of Israel, again, uh, this is verse 8 again. Notice at the end of that, that he, that he may save us. Now that's interesting. That he may, really? He? That God may save us? Isn't that what they said in 1 Samuel chapter 4? Before they lost the ark? Remember what they said? Put a little mark off to the next year Bible. 1 Samuel 4 verses 2 and 3. Because notice what they said earlier. Before they lost the ark. The Philistines put themselves in the battle array, and when they joined the battle, Israel was defeated. About 4,000 men of Israel were killed, and when the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? I got an idea. Let's bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, and when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. It may save us. You know the difference. They put so much focus on the ark. Oh, it's going to save us. Really? Is it really the ark that's going to save you, or is it the God of the ark? But notice what they said in this verse, at the last part of verse 8 here. He says that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. I think they learned that lesson. The ark, they put their faith in the ark, and the ark was taken. God doesn't, he doesn't, he will never be second player. He'll never be second. He needs to be first on everything, on the altar of our hearts. Don't put anything or anyone on the altar of your heart but Jesus. If you have him on the altar of your heart, everything else works out just fine, including marriages. I've known people who have put their spouse on the altar of their heart. She's everything I wanted. Everything I want, I'd do anything for her, you know. And, and, you know, give her this and give her that. I bought her a house and this Lamborghini and, you know, I've given her everything. And she's there on the altar of my heart. It always ends in disaster. Always. God will see to it. Because no one should be on the throne of your heart save Jesus Christ. He alone. And let me tell you something. If your spouse tells you that they love you more than they love God, you better have a talk with them. You need to love God, both of you, separately, husband and wife. You need to love Jesus more than your, even your love for each other. And once you get that straight, then your marriage is going to work because now the expectation, if you look at your wife or your husband as the thing that you just always desired and always wanted, believe me, they're going to fail you. And once they fail you, you're going to get angry. And the problems just keep going from there. They just keep cascading. But put Jesus on the altar of your heart. Everything else must be subservient to that one thing, and then everything will go just fine. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. Do you believe it? I believe it. And I've even understood it in practice. So therefore, I own that truth, and, don't, and you own it too. If you've done, if you experience that, you own that truth. Now, put it into practice in every other area of your life. That's what we should do, right? Because there's never, and the fact that they are now looking now to the Lord instead of just what the ark can do for us, they're actually moving forward. They're not sliding backward. And believe me, you are either moving forward with the Lord or you're sliding backward. There's no neutral. You can't just say, well, I'm just going to go on autopilot. As soon as you go on autopilot, you begin to regress. You begin to go in reverse. You begin to go backward. You begin to slowly backslide. And, oh, it's such a slow process. All it takes is, you know, I don't feel like going to church today. I don't feel like going to church now. I don't want to. I'll go there maybe once on on Christmas. I'll go go on Christmas. I'll go on Christmas and Easter. I got to go on Easter for heaven's sake, you know. And why bother? 
At that point, your heart is so far away, you're just doing it to appease somebody. You're not appeasing God at all if your heart is not right in it. There's no neutral place. And so now they're moving forward. There is no neutral. You're either going forward or you're sliding back. Notice verse 9 now in our text. Samuel took a suckling lamb and he offered as a whole burnt offering of the Lord. And then Samuel cried out to the Lord of Israel, for Israel, excuse me. And then notice, the Lord answered him. The Lord answers. He loves, he delights in answering his servants. Especially his servants that are really loving him and walking in purity It doesn't mean that when you make a mistake, God's not going to speak to you. He does. He's very gracious. Never misunderstand that. It's not legalism. God is not a legalist. He is a gracious God. There are so many instances in the Old Testament where David himself should have been murdered. He should have been, not murdered, he should have been put to death for his sin. But did God do that? No, David confessed and he broke like an egg. And God says, you know what, David, you're not going to die but your firstborn son is. You're not going to die. But there's always a consequence. And I love how Samuel took this suckling lamb and he offered as a whole burnt offering. I see in this a foreshadowing of what Jesus, what God would do to his own son. The spotless lamb of God taken, and he willingly laid down his life for us on that cross. The greatest act of worship that ever was experienced on a Roman cross nearly 2,000 years ago. Now in verse 10 of our text, it says, Samuel, As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome by Israel. And the Lord, uh, the enemy, excuse me, he loves to attack when the people of God are worshiping. I remember um, our first trip to Israel was in 2005, for me anyway. And I remember we were in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it was around noontime. And uh, right, across the, right across the Kidron Valley there in the Garden of Gethsemane is the Temple Mount. And, of course, the minarets and everything are up there, and they're, they're singing their Islamic. It, it, doesn't, it sounds really ugly, I'll be honest with you. It just sounds like, uh, like a cat on a hot tin roof. It just sounds, we're sitting there, and we're having this Bible study. Pastor Jeff's having this Bible study. It's a really beautiful moment, and it came time for Kathy and I to lead the, the group in worship, and we start, we start singing and worshiping, and all of a sudden you hear this racket going on, right? And I'm serious. It's, it's just ugly. And, and, and it was so loud and overpowering us that I was tempted for one moment to stop. And I was singing, I'm like, Lord, what's, what's, the, what's the point? And I, I, I almost stopped strumming. He says, don't you stop. And I just kept going. I'm like, okay. We just kept going, and, you know, and their, their stuff stopped, and we continued. But the, isn't that wonderful? But God will be on your side, and the enemy loves to attack when the people of God worship. We saw that in Israel's history in the Yom Kippur War, remember, 1973, from October 6th through the 25th. The enemies, the Syrians, they came from the Golan Heights, and they came down from the north, and Egypt came from the south in the Sinai Peninsula, and they were going to wipe Israel out on their, the most holy day of their, of their calendar. It was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It was a day where they did nothing. They caught them by surprise, and they did it on purpose because they were all, you know, relaxing with their families, celebrating with their families. And by the way, it didn't work so well for the Syrians and the Egyptians because once they got into those tanks, once they got into those jets, the war was over, and they pushed them way back. They pushed them way back from where they had come from. And God was always going to take care of his people. He'll take care of you because you're his people too, right? We're his people. He's going to take care of you. He's not going to leave you or forsake you. Notice that the Lord thundered upon them with a loud thunder, you know. Uh, Remember Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10? What did she say as part of her prayer? She said, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven, he will thunder against them. Wow, isn't that amazing? He's doing that very thing right now. And was it the first time that God did that? No, it wasn't. We remember back in Joshua chapter 10, when these five kings had come against the Gibeonites, whom Israel had made a pact with. 
And so Israel goes out, and remember, that's the time when the sun stood still for an entire day. It's never happened before, and it'll never happen again. God said, I did it once, and it baffled everybody. Even the astrologers, all those people who study that stuff, they know that it happened once in the history, and it changed things. (laughs) And God did that, all because Joshua said, Lord, we need more time to vanquish the enemy. And God says, I'll give it to you. You need more sunlight? No problem. I'm just going to hold that thing there. He didn't even have to put his hand on it. He says, be still. See in a little while. <laughs> I love that about God, don't you? It's, it's, it's a fool's errand to go against God. And what happened that day? It says that as the enemy was fleeing before them, uh, that as they were on their descent from Beth, of Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. And there was more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. God with us. I love that. Emmanuel, God with us. Love that. And when the men of Israel, back in our text, verse 11, went out to, of Mizpah and they pursued the Philistines, drove them back as far as Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen. This place called Shen was more like an outcropping of rock, probably. It's not really known exactly where it is. But he noticed that um, Samuel called the name of that stone Ebenezer. For thus far has the Lord helped us. That's why we're saying, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. The hymn tells us exactly what that word means, Ebenezer. When I think of Ebenezer, I think of Ebenezer Scrooge. Ebenezer, Ebenezer, in your heart there dwells a freezer. That's what I think of when I see Ebenezer. But it's a stone of help. And, and, and he put that there as a remembrance of God's victory because earlier in chapter 4 we saw that they fought at Ebenezer, but this was a different place called Ebenezer, and they got beat pretty bad. But now they have victory over their enemies, and Samuel puts this stone, and he called it the stone of help. He called it Ebenezer. And so the Philistines, verse 13, were subdued, and they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Remember, when Saul came into the picture, he had some scourge, he had some problems with the Philistines, but they, they, were, they were pretty much subdued. They were more like just gnats flying around your head, so to speak. They weren't as big of a problem, but they were subdued under Samuel. And finally, and ultimately, under the reign of David, we know that they would be vanquished completely, and they'd be put into submission and destroyed. And so we know that that ultimately did come to pass. So verse 14, it says, The cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines, and there was peace between Israel, notice, and the Amorites. The Amorites were another perennial enemy of Israel, but notice there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. In Proverbs 16, verse 7, I love this verse. It says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. You know, there's something really wonderful and gentle about a child of God who is not acting all haughty and acting like they've got it all together, walking around with their chest stuck out, you know, being really proud and arrogant. But there's something wonderful about a child of God who's just real. They're not trying to put on airs. They're not trying to be anything. They're just humbled, but they're truthful. Tell you what, those are the, you're the type of people that people are going to come to when you act that way. Nobody likes to approach somebody who thinks they've got it all together, that their head is full of helium. Nobody wants to be around a person like that, but a real child of God who's real, and they understand that the nature, the old nature, they're dealing with it themselves. Man, you can really hang out with somebody like that because you feel like, man, I, why, why is it that I feel so comfortable around you? I can't put a, my finger on it. What's, what is it with you? Well, it's because of Jesus. He's changed my life. He wants to change yours too. That's why you feel comfortable. It's because a part of God is in me that's shining forth and you're seeing it. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that really what it's all about? God using you. You're just a vessel that he can use. I love that. Let your life be a light. Let your light so shine before men that they'll see your good works and they're going to glorify you. No, they're going to glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's always a good thing. Deflect anything to him. It's all for him. It's all about him. Amen? 
We see the same thing with Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, and Cyrus, and Darius. Daniel, this wonderful character of a man. Here he is in captivity in Babylon, and this wonderful character of his, and his devotion to Jesus, it ends up getting Nebuchadnezzar saved. Through a series of events, and through Nebuchadnezzar watching this man above all the soothsayers, and all the diviners, and all the weirdos in his kingdom, he looked at Daniel, he's like, something about this guy. I just, I really like him. Everyone else is trying to lie. They're lying to me. They're fooling. They're playing games with me. But this guy, he's more holy than I am. I see something about him, but he's humble. He's not arrogant. He's real. He isn't, he's not looking for the limelight. And he was promoted. And even after the Medes and the Persians came against Babylon, Darius the Mede says, Daniel, I like you too. I'm going to keep you on my staff. And then when he passed from the scene, Cyrus the Persian came. I'm going to keep you on staff. really like you. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with them. Verse 15, we're coming to the end here. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel. And Bethel, uh, remember, um, Ramah is here. Bethel is up here, and then he would go to Gilgal over by the Dead Sea, and then he would come back down to Mizpah, and he would make the circuit every year, judging the house of Israel, uh, answering questions and, and dealing with issues, and exhorting them to holiness and walking with the Lord. Again, sort of like a governor. He was the last judge of Israel before the monarchy would come, before King Saul would come. But notice verse 17, but he always returned to Ramah. Ramah was where he was born. Ramah was his home. For his home was there, and there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And I love that. I love that, this wonderful character. And as we get into next week, we're going to see Israel's itch for a king like everybody else. We want to be like everybody else. Really? You want to be like everybody else? Why don't you just be yourself? Isn't that funny how there's teenagers today that say, I just want to, you know, I want to be different, but yet they want to be like everybody else. They got to have everything like everybody else. And I, and I don't blame them for that because I was the same, I did those same things. Kept claiming I wanted, to be, I wanted to be my own dog. You know, I wanted to be my own thing. I wanted to be unique, but not really. I want to be like everybody else. I want to wear the same clothes and the same shoes, same music, same headphones. Got to have the same stuff. But God loves And I love this. To me, this chapter is really great because I think what we can take away from it is that the blessings of obedience. The blessings of obedience. There's always a blessing for obedience. What does it say in Romans 6.23? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin, I get paid for something. When I sin, I get paid. And what, what do I get paid? Death. It's going to be something, a death of something, a death of a relationship. Maybe even your own physical death. John called that a, a sin of uh, death or, or um, a sin unto death. If you've got a cocaine problem, you've got a heroin problem, you've got a sin unto death because more than likely it's going to take you. But maybe you just got a bitter heart. Maybe you just got an unforgiving heart. That's a slow death. Because sometimes you hold on to that stuff for years and it just eats at you like a cancer. And there's people in your own house, in your own family that you're not willing to talk to. And think about this as we come across, come upon Thanksgiving. You're going to be with people as long as there's not more than 10. You know what? Enjoy Thanksgiving. Don't count heads. Forget all that nonsense. Wash your hands. Take your vitamin C and enjoy the family. For heaven's sakes, stay out of our business. Amen? (laughs) Let's stand together. Blessings of obedience. There's always blessings for obedience. Father, we thank you for this chapter, and we thank you for Samuel. And Lord, help us, Lord, your children, Lord, to be more submitted to you tomorrow than we were today. Lord, help us to be surrendered to you completely, Lord. Lord, help us to put off those things that we know are evil and to put on those things that we know are good. Put on, 
put off those things and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, there's no shame in that at all. But everything else, Lord, the fruit of it was nothing but shame and destruction and pain, agony. But Lord, your ways are wonderful. They're not always easy. But Lord, we can rest at night knowing that we have done your will, even if we go through hard times. So Lord, have your way with us tonight. Thank you for everyone. I pray that you'd bless every single person here, Father, in abundance. Just overflow them with your grace and your love. Lord, protect them in their health. Lord, protect their family gathering. Lord, bless them immensely. Lord, make this the best Thanksgiving we've ever had. Pour out your spirit upon us as the church, upon this family of ours. Pour out your spirit, Lord, upon this country, Lord. Heal us, God. Remove the things that are evil and pour out your spirit and bless that which remains on everyone, Lord. And bring those evildoers to repentance for they too, like us, we need you, God. We love you and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.